Welcome everybody to the Neurological Deep Dive. I am your host, Ferret Fawns, and today we're going to talk about the fallacies of pre-forgiveness. Yes, the fallacies of pre-forgiveness, and that's going to be brought to you today by Gospel Dawn. Gospel Dawn is going to talk to us and inspire us again. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Please enjoy the show. Hour with Dawn. The title of this podcast or this deep dive is The Fallacy of Pre Forgiveness. Now, I've been talking in the past podcasts about justification by faith, otherwise known as gospel justification. I have defined it as this gospel justification means to be accepted as righteous on account of the atoning sufferings and death. Christ. Now, I have also been talking about what gospel justification is not. I have said that it is not legal justification or being declared righteous in a legal sense. Justification by faith is not justification by the law or by the works of the law, in other words. And as I had said before, legal justification is being found not guilty because of a lifelong record of full conformity to God's law. So, in essence, there's two ways to be justified before God, or to be accepted as righteous before God. One of them is the legal way, and the other way is the gospel way. And the legal way is the way of perfect, lifelong, uninterrupted obedience to law. Well, since we've all failed in that way, we need another way to be, to be accepted by God. And the other way is the gospel way. So I've said it is not legal justification. Also, gospel justification is not Christ imputing his righteousness unto us, as I said in our last podcast. In this podcast, I want to talk about pre-forgiveness. I want to talk about the fallacy of pre-forgiveness. And what is pre-forgiveness? It is really... Uh, pre-cancellation of sin. So gospel justification is not the pre-cancellation of sin or the pre-forgiveness of sins. There are people that are saying that Christ, when he died on the cross, he atoned for all all our sins. Now that is true, obviously. But it is not true that All our sins have been forgiven when Christ died at the cross. See, when he died on the cross, all our past, present, and future sins have been atoned for by the blood of Christ. But no man is forgiven of present sin or forgiven of future sins. The Bible says that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. That is uh, mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. And the word ransom means the price paid for procuring the pardon of sins and for procuring redemption from our sins. 
which would mean a cancellation of the penalty for our sin. So that's what a ransom is. So Christ made a ransom for everyone in the world. He atoned for everybody's sins, past, present, and future. However, our sins are personally forgiven and canceled only when we convert to Christ, when we believe in him and repent of our sins. In uh, civil matters, under a just and fair government, a person who has committed a crime but afterwards receives a pardon is on good terms with his government. Um, under any human government, a pardoned individual is one who is released of the obligation to suffer the incurred penalty of a broken law. But if a pardoned individual breaks the law again, will he remain in a perpetually justified state and be no longer liable to condemnation? Absolutely not. No good and just government in any world would ever think of granting to any individual a permanent exemption from punishment for future crimes. In other words, all good governments, civil governments that is, none of them, I should say all good governments, are not a respecter of persons. In other words, they don't show favoritism. It would be only a bad government that would be a respecter of persons and show favoritism. So in this talk on the, the pre-cancellation of sin, the fact that gospel justification is not that, I want to go into, I want to make three points. Number one, I want to talk about the idea of pre-forgiveness is illogical and contrary to good government. I want to make that point. And the next point I want to make is that the notion of pre-forgiveness tends to produce carelessness and sin and immorality. And the third point is the idea of pre-forgiveness or of unconditional and perpetual favor is unscriptural. First, let's talk about the concept that the idea of pre-forgiveness is illogical. It's unreasonable. Suppose a man exceeds the speed limit while driving his car under the influence of alcohol. He gets pulled over by the police officer and is found guilty of speeding and driving under the influence. Is he at this point on good terms with the law or with his government? No, he is not. Let us suppose he is tried in court, found guilty, and sentenced to pay a fine and do some time in jail. Is he in a justified state with his government at this point and with the law? No, he isn't. He is a condemned person. Now suppose that while in jail, he becomes remorseful and repentant. He pays the fine. He serves his time in jail with a good attitude. And he tells the authorities that he, he fully intends never to repeat this crime again or to commit any other crime again. The penalty for breaking the law has been paid, public justice has been satisfied, and the fruits of repentance, repentance have been shown on the part of the guilty man. The government officials accept the satisfaction made for his crime, accept his apology, and perceive in him a penitent attitude. 
Now, on account of these conditions being fulfilled, the government then reinstates him into favor and allows him to go free. He is now justified. He's on good terms with the law and with his government. Now, suppose two years later, this same man is charged and found guilty of another crime. Let us suppose he steals a car. Is he still justified before the law? Is he still on good terms with his government? Not at all. Is his state of justification unconditionally guaranteed and perpetual? Obviously not. No government would ever grant pre-forgiveness or perpetual justification to persons unless that government was a respecter of persons. Only a corrupt government would, ex would extend to specially selected citizens the benefit of pre-forgiveness or of unconditionally guaranteed favor. God's government over mankind is similar to all good human governments, except for the fact that his government is always and altogether just and merciful. The supreme being is abundantly merciful, but he will never relax his strict justice in order to show mercy. In other words, God has utmost respect for the fixed and unalterable moral laws of the universe. Consequently, he could not grant unconditional acceptance or pre-forgiveness of sins to any without seriously undermining his wholesome and upright government. If God ever granted pre-forgiveness, his subjects would naturally take advantage of this pre-forgiveness to the point of becoming morally careless. They would turn God's grace into lasciviousness. It would damage God's kingdom tremendously if his elect felt and believed that all their future sins were already canceled, even prior to being committed and prior to being forsaken. Could this idea of pre-forgiveness be a contributing factor of much disobedience within the professing church? I believe it is. If everybody instinctively knows that it is wrong to let criminals get away with crime, then surely God would not and could not allow believers who draw back into sin to be immune from guilt and punishment while persisting in their sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, it says, Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. This shows that believers can forfeit God's favor by their sin. It is clear from other scriptures that if God has no pleasure in us, then it means we are under his displeasure and not at peace with him. And there's quite a few verses that show that to be true. One of them would be, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Another one would be Mark chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. God's pleasure in believers is conditioned upon their living by faith 
and not drawing back. Now, it's interesting here. It says, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, drawing back presupposes that spiritual progress was made. Nobody can draw back unless they've first gone forward in the Christian life. So that shows that it is possible to draw back. It is possible to backslide. So the idea that a born-again one is unconditionally forgiven of all present and future sins is not only unreasonable, but also contrary to good government in every world, whether it be on earth or in heaven. So there's no way that God gives us uh, God that God gives us unconditional forgiveness for present and future sins. Well, just think about it. If you're sinning right now, and I'm sinning right now, I cannot be forgiven while I'm sinning. I have to repent of that sin in order to be forgiven. And future sins, well, they have not even been committed yet. Well, you can't confess a sin unless you first committed it. And you can't be forgiven of, of sin unless it is confessed and forsaken. So this is all consistent with reason and common sense here. So that was the first point. Pre-forgiveness is contrary to common sense or contrary to, to logic and reason. Here's this, the next point. The notion of pre-forgiveness tends to produce carelessness and sin and immorality. Pre-forgiveness is forgiveness extended prior to the proper conditions first being met. And for this reason, it is never granted by God. And it is not an aspect of His grace. God's grace, if properly understood, will not tend to promote moral laxness and immorality. Um, it's pretty clear that God's saving grace is free. That is taught in the Bible. But it's also conditioned. It's conditioned upon our repentance and our faith. So saving grace is free, but also conditional. That is a very important um, thing that a lot of times people don't know. And that word grace really means kindness. It means favor. It means unmerited favor. And God will show us favor if we do our part, which would be to repent, which means to return. Repent really means return to forgiveness. In other words, be sorry enough to change. That's what repent means. And we've got to have faith in Christ and faith in God's word. Sometimes forgiveness can do much harm to the well-being of God's kingdom and of mankind in general. That is, if it's extended without the proper conditions first being met. Pre-canceled sin is, in essence, the wrongful toleration of sin. I don't know if you folks remember in the 1990s, but when the U.S. Senate pardoned President Bill Clinton, it did much damage to our country. Why? Because the president never made a full confession, never showed fruits of repentance, and never made satisfaction for his crimes. 
and never came clean with the American people. And I'm referring to his sin with Monica Lewinsky and uh, perjury. He committed a few other things, but never really came clean. And so it does much damage to a government and to a people when forgiveness is extended only to certain special individuals and not extended on the basis of suitable conditions first being met. If a person thinks he can get away from being punished for a future sin, he will naturally be inclined to give in to sin and temptations uh, when temptations do come, that is. He'll, he'll tend to give in to temptations. President Bill Clinton most likely figured that he could sin with impunity, and so this is probably why he tested his limits. Among other reasons, he most likely sinned because he felt he was immune and safe from the danger of being severely punished. But some may object and say the former, they may object by, by saying that the former president was not a believer and had no love for God. And so that's why he sinned. Well, I'm sure that had a big part in it. But actually, all three of these factors contributed to his moral failure. Number one, he was not a believer. Number two, in, believer in God, believer in Christ. He might have claimed it, but he, he really wasn't. Number two, he had no real love for God. And, he, and number three, he feared no real repercussions or no real condemnation and punishment for his misdeeds. And that's probably why he did what he did. And that's why a lot of politicians do what they do. They don't fear the consequences of their misbehaviors. Richard Taylor, in his book called The Scandal of Pre-Forgiveness, hits the nail on the head when he said this, I quote, No matter how regenerate and sanctified a believer may be, no matter how deep is his desire to live a holy life, he will at times experience powerful temptations. Does anyone really suppose that a Christian who believes that the beckoning sin is already forgiven will try as hard to resist it as he would if he believed he was exposing himself to sin's full eternal consequences? Theoretically, perfect love for God will counterbalance the pull of the temptation. But in some situations and times, our love may not be that perfect. At such times, love needs the supplement and reinforcement of old-fashioned fear the fear of God's wrath, the fear of sin's ultimate potential, which is hell. And, you know, I was thinking about this passage, and, and you know, I, he quoted that sometimes we all experience powerful temptations, and that's why we should pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And that's a part of the Lord's prayer. And I thought, what does that mean, Lord, lead us not into temptation? I believe it means, Lord, bring us not into trials that may endanger our souls. Sometimes God, in his goodness, can prevent us from being severely tempted. But sometimes he allows the temptation to come. So whether he removes the temptation 
or whether he allows us to go through the temptation, we need to make sure that we resist uh, the devil and resist uh, that temptation and do what's right in the midst of it. So I just thought that was interesting. So God employs the fear of being punished as an inducement to obey the moral law. The ever-enduring truth uh, made known to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, namely that in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die, was the God-appointed means to encourage Adam and Eve to obey him. And so that threat that God gave to Adam and Eve was designed to keep Adam and Eve on the right side of the law. The fear of going to hell fire was often used by Jesus Christ as a means of procuring obedience to his laws. And uh, I'm quoting now in Matthew chapter 5 and beginning to read at verse 27. It says, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till all, all things be paid to the utter, uttermost farthing. That was verse 26. Here's verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So you can see here how the fear of going to hell acts as an incentive to stay on the right side of the law and to do what's right. And Christ employs that fear of hell. So the concept of pre-forgiveness is not seen in this passage. And uh, I, the word there in verse 29, it says, if thy right I offend thee. In other words, seduce thee or entrap thee. And uh, so we have to guard our feelings. And somebody wrote this nice little comment on this passage. And this is what they said. Affections for forbidden objects must be sacrificed at whatever expense to our feelings. So we've got to put the fear of God ahead of our feelings. And um, because the fear of God is something real and uh, the consequence for sin and the penalty for sin is going is eternal death or hell. And so um, right here you could see that the fear of hell was used as a means of procuring obedience. If pre-forgiveness is true, then this would imply that no sin in the once true believer could ever bar him from heaven. Can you imagine how this view of prepaid coverage for future sin could easily grant license to sin? 
Can we honestly expect those who think all their future sins are pre-canceled will put forth serious efforts at discovering and fulfilling their full duty to God? Do you see how the notion of perpetually guaranteed divine favor could lead to moral indifference, to lukewarmness, to apostasy in the lives of true Christians? I see it. But some may object to this teaching by claiming that the future sins of true believers are indeed under the blood and already forgiven because they'll point to this verse maybe. It's in Hebrews 10 verse 17. It says, And their iniquities and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He said that also in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34. Yes, well I answer this to that objection. This is not talking about future sins, but about sins already committed that have been already confessed and forsaken. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is to those who have God's law in their hearts and who are submitted to God as their God, to whom God says, I will remember their sin no more. When sins are no longer remembered, it means they are remitted. It means they are no longer born in mind with intent to punish. They are no longer remembered in that they are no longer held against us. They have been forsaken and therefore forgiven. And there's quite a few verses in the Bible that teach this concept, that in order for sin to be forgiven, they must be forsaken. And one of them is in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, if we want to be pardoned, we need to return to God. And if we want to be receive God's saving mercy, we need to forsake our evil way, according to that verse. And then it, there's another verse. It's in Acts chapter 8. And verse 22 says, Repent ye therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. You see how the repentance must precede God's act of forgiveness. So a sin must be forsaken before it can be forgiven or not held against us. How many godly and concerned parents would grant pre-forgiveness or unconditional acceptance and unconditional favor to their children? Surely no godly parent would do that. To do so would hurt their children very much because it would tend to produce in them a lax or disobedient attitude which could lead to a shortened life, to much heartache and sorrow, and to a ruined soul, and eventually to hell and damnation. Good parents love their children enough to express disapproval in them if they disobey. Good parents will reprove their children and use the rod of correction should they go astray. And that is mentioned in Proverbs 
chapter 29, verse 15, it says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. And there's another verse in Proverbs 20, verse 30. It says, The blueness of the wound cleanseth away evil. So do stripes, uh, the inward parts of the belly. So you see, the blueness of the wound cleanses away evil. That means pain has a good way of teaching us to avoid sin. So pain is probably the best teacher around. And um, so that's Proverbs 29. True love must sometimes discipline and must sometimes use severity. That, that's true love now. Even God does that because in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, he says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. God's severity is part of his benevolence for his universe and for mankind in general. That's why he has to use severity. That's why he brought the flood on the ungodly way back in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And he, he did that because he cared about humanity. He knew that if he did not do something, that humanity would just continue ignoring God. And so that's why he brought the flood. And, and to, even today, we can learn a lot of valuable lessons from the fact that God judged the whole world. In fact, he's going to judge it again someday. And, but it won't be with a flood, with water. It's going to be with fire. He's going to judge the world again. And that could be very, very soon. So here's another verse that we're talking about uh, disciplining our children. It says, Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. See that? See how pain can have a way of teaching and instructing. And it, it is the loving parent that will do that. He, he spanks the child because he loves the child. He does not want that child to go on in sin and end up in hell. So, um, so that's why uh, discipline is, is a very important aspect of, um, of, um, of, of promoting godliness in this world. God the Father would surely never grant forgiveness of sins prior to their being committed because he knows it would leave man without law and himself without dominion. This world would be a total mess if no one subjected themselves to God and to his laws. And to be without laws uh, it, it would, would, would just make this, this world a living hell. And that's what's taking place more and more as, as we, we go on here. Um, this world is becoming more and more corrupt. And that's why there is a great movement, communist movement, and movement by Rome to uh, bring about the Antichrist. Without God's laws and dominion, the human race would collapse morally and it would become a living hell on earth. We got to remember that God's law was given, they were his love rules. It's because he loves us. So God's law was given to be kept, not to be broken, but to be kept. And why did he, does he want us to keep the laws? Because it will bring happiness to us. It will bring joy. 
It will bring peace, togetherness. It will make for wholesome relationships. I mean, everything good comes if we keep God's law. But if we believe in this concept of pre-forgiveness, then God's law becomes optional, at least in, in the people's minds. And that's why God does not extend pre-forgiveness to anybody. The moment you sin is the moment you incur God's displeasure. And uh, you are in a state of condemnation to the moment you are sinning. Just realize that. You're not feeling his condemnation, but you are under his condemnation. And if you continue in that sin and do not repent, then you will someday feel God's wrath and God's condemnation. That's why this is called the gospel hour. We want the gospel is the solution. Solution to sin. So here's the third point. The idea of pre-forgiveness or of unconditional and perpetual favor is unscriptural. I want us to look at some of the scriptures now. Now, all these verses I'm going to show or reveal or tell you, to one extent or another, they show that uh, forgiveness is not given before the sin is even committed. So let's look first at Adam and Eve. They were both innocent and in favor with God and legally justified before their first sin. But they lost their state of justification. They lost their favor with God after they sinned. So Adam and Eve's case presents a clear example of losing one's acceptance with God. Here's another verse of Scripture, Ezekiel 18, chapter 18, verse 24, quote, But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he has trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. The righteous here, that end quote, by the way, the righteous here cannot refer to the self-righteous man, as some have claimed, but to the man who is upright in his heart and life. If the righteous represents the self-righteous, then turning away from one's self-righteousness would be a good thing and not an iniquity. So the righteous here speaks of the saint or the repentant sinner who has been forgiven. We can see here in this passage that the righteous is wrong if he turneth away from his righteousness. This implies that we all need to be righteous for ourselves and in ourselves and not plead Christ's righteousness in default of our own. The words, in them shall he die, mean that spiritual death shall ensue for those sins that are committed by the righteous after they've been forgiven even. A previously forgiven man then can die spiritually and forfeit his forgiveness if he commits sin again and remains in it. So that verse clearly teaches that pre-canceled sin is a fallacy. It doesn't happen. If you've been forgiven of all your past sins and you're right with God right now, great. But you need to stay the course and stay away from sin if you want to maintain your favor with God and your justified state. Here's a third example from Scripture. The parable of the unforgiving servant 
in Matthew 18, verse 23 to 35, vividly teaches that a previously forgiven man can afterwards forfeit his state of favor and be again condemned. That is, if he develops an unmerciful disposition or goes back into sin. In this parable, the previously forgiven servant, in verse 32, was delivered to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. It must be observed that the king imprisons his servant for the debt which he had at first forgiven. The old forgiven sin of a person who falls away from the faith springs up anew and condemns him. Christ brings this parable home to all his disciples by saying, So likewise shall my Father, my Heavenly Father, do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. That's a quote from Matthew 18, verse 34 and 35. So you can see that he's speaking to his disciples. These disciples were on good terms with God and with Christ. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, you disciples, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And this is not talking about blanket forgiveness as some have taught. It's talking about forgiving people when the conditions are suitable for it. And it's also talking about having a merciful disposition or a willingness to forgive. We should be willing to forgive every person on this earth. That doesn't mean we extend forgiveness to every person on this earth, but it does mean we, we have the heart of forgiveness we're willing to. So the lesson in this parable here is this. All who lack mercy or the willingness to forgive others, despite a previously right standing with God, will forfeit their right standing and be condemned to torment by God Almighty. In James chapter 2, verse 13, we read, Quote, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So God always prefers to show mercy than to deliver judgment, of course, because he's a merciful God. But if we don't do what we need to do to get mercy from God, then we will get his judgment. And there's another verse, it says, it's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. It says, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, what does that mean? Well, I guess there are times when God will not forgive our trespasses. Notice it says that? Neither will God forgive your trespasses. That's if we are unforgiving ourselves. So that's why we need to have a forgiving spirit all the time. A vindictive spirit will not enter heaven. And you know, I was thinking of this whole thing of forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins and for you or I to be forgiven of our sins and to have eternal life is like the man in this parable who was in debt over $15 million. And his Lord forgave him of that debt because he had a right disposition at the time. And his Lord forgave him of $15 million. Well, being forgiven by God is like you owing $15 million to someone, and that person cancels that debt or releases you of that debt. Think of the blessing that would be to you if you owed a ton of money and all of a sudden somebody who is kind forgave you of that debt. Well, that's what it's like to be forgiven of our sins. 
It is the greatest treasure any of us can have because we have all racked up quite a debt with God if we were going to count all our past sins. So being forgiven is is the, one of the is probably the greatest blessing you can ever receive. Next verse: Divine favor is not unconditionally guaranteed so long as a soul is in a state of probation. Now that's not the verse, but it's seen in this verse. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, he said, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Paul said that. A believer, a very faithful, one of the best Christians that ever lived. He said, if we deny him, he also will deny us. There's no pre-cancellation of sin here. If a justified apostle could be rejected by Christ for denying him, then how can any other justified soul be immune or exempt from Christ's rejection for denying him. Judas Iscariot denied Christ. And, and I believe Judas Iscariot was right with God because Jesus chose him to be one of his apostles to reach the whole world with the gospel. And Judas Iscariot denied Christ and betrayed Christ. And he was called the son of perdition. Because he went to a state of perdition. That word perdition, by the way, means loss of well-being. It does not mean the loss of being. It means the loss of well-being. It's a state of misery. And that's where Judas went. Even though we have reason to believe Judas was in the favor of Christ at one time. So that was that verse uh, uh, in 2 Timothy. That was found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 where Paul says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And Romans chapter 3 is another verse. Romans chapter 3, I'm turning there. And verse 25, it, it says this, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now that's a little tough verse to understand. But it says God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation. Propitiation means a satisfactory payment. And we will receive that propitiation, a full propitiation and, and, and God's favor, if we have faith in his blood. And the word blood is a one word that depicts his sufferings and death on the cross. So because he died on the cross, that propitiated the Father and Christ. And now he is able to declare his righteousness or his justification for the remission of sins that are past. You see, the blood of Christ will only forgive us of our sins for those sins that are past, meaning that we have repented of and that we have cast off. If we cast off those sins, yes, God will remit those sins. But it's only sins that are past, not the sins that are future. If you commit future sins, well, then you're going to have to confess again. So that's in Romans chapter 3. Here's another point. The blessing of no condemnation is promised to those who are believing, not, necessar not necessarily to those who have believed. Seeing that some shall depart from the faith, and that a believer could, if he doesn't take heed, 
develop an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, it is entirely within the realm of possibility that true believers could revert to a state of unbelief and be lost again. Here's a verse, quote, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's in John chapter 5, verse 24. But it says, he that heareth my word, so you've got to hear his word. Some people, they don't know God's word because they're not choosing to hear it. That's something you've got to do. You've got to open your ears and hear God's word, or at least read it from the Bible. So he that heareth his word and believeth, the word believeth means is believing. So it's the one, it's the present believer who has everlasting life. Not the one who has believed, but the one who is believing. And here's another verse that's in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So in these verses, we see that the guarantee of no condemnation is promised to none, but to persevering believers who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. To walk after the flesh means to live according to your feelings or your desires or your passions. And if you don't have something to counterbalance that, you're going you're gonna to just live your life according to your feelings. You're going to do what you want to do. And of course, that will lead you down the road to destruction. So you need a counterbalancing somebody to counterbalance that. And the counterbalancer would be the Holy Spirit. See, we have to walk after the Spirit. To walk after the Spirit simply means to walk after the law of the Spirit of God. It means to do His will. So you can see in these verses that I just read that it's only the believers or those that are believing, present tense, who are secure in their salvation. And I quoted the verse, some shall depart from the faith. Well, some will say, well, if people depart from the faith, it means they were never saved to begin with. Well, this verse says some shall depart from the faith. You can't depart from something unless you're previously with it or in it. So you can't depart from the faith unless you're previous, you've been previously in the faith. So these people were in the faith and they departed from it which shows that that can happen. And that's found in 1 Timothy, I believe, or 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm not quite sure where that is. But anyway, it's in 1 Timothy, I believe. Some shall depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits. I think believe it's chapter uh, 4 uh, of 1 Timothy. So here's another point. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. As I already mentioned earlier, that's in 1 John 1, 9. Now, how can pre-forgiveness be scriptural and be a scriptural and true idea if confession of sin is required as a prerequisite for forgiveness? Doesn't this verse plainly show that the sins of believers are not automatically pre-canceled? 
at the point of initial conversion or when Christ died on the cross. If all the future sins yet to be committed by believers are already wiped out, then what need is there for a believer who relapses into sin to confess it and seek forgiveness? 1 John 1.9 becomes meaningless and it also becomes needless. If all your sins are forgiven, then why confess? You don't have to confess anything. You don't have to repent after you sin. So this whole concept is very unscriptural. Now, our sins were not taken away at the cross 2,000 years ago. No, they were atoned for at that time. Our sins are taken away at conversion. It's after we confess them, after we repent. And that's an important truth that we have to realize. Here's another thought. If all the future sins of believers are forgiven or under the blood in the sense of forgiveness at the point of initial conversion, then what need will there be for a Christian to appear at the judgment seat of Christ and be judged and to be judged according to all that he had done, whether it be good or bad? See, if you're pre-forgiven of all your sins and you die and there's sin in your heart and in your life and you die, that sin will be judged by God. It's going to be brought up. But if you're pre-forgiven, no, that would not be brought up. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that all that we have done, whether good or bad, will be reviewed by God. And if the bad you've done has not been previously forgiven, then you're not going to go to heaven, neither will I. That's why we need to be saved. Modern theology does not like to think about the idea of saints being judged according to their works. Works have nothing to do with salvation, so they say. But God disagrees. Works prove faith. And so where there are no good works, there is no real faith. It is clear that all men, including true believers, will be judged by their works at the last judgment. And there's a lot of verses that prove that. God will render to every man according to his deeds. And some of the verses are Psalm 15, 1 and 2. Acts chapter 10, verse 35, Romans chapter 2, 1 through 16, Romans chapter 4, verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, as I already mentioned, uh, chapter not 9, but chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, and there's others. And uh, so God will render to every man according to his deeds. Many are wrongly taught that the unconfessed and unforsaken evil works of believers will not be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ, but only their service and their motives will be brought up, and they themselves shall be saved, yet so is by fire. And they find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, this is a, delu a delusion, because the Bible teaches that workers of iniquity will go to hell. So if you die with sin, if you die in your sin, you're not going to go to heaven. But if you die in the Lord, you will be blessed and go to heaven. However, if our evil works are confessed and forgiven, 
though they may be they may be the cause of loss of reward they will not be the cause of god's denial of us and of our doom if we persevere in faith so even the sins you commit the time wasted that's going to be reviewed on judgment day now you may be forgiven of that but you will lose rewards if you've wasted time, if I've wasted time. These are solemn thoughts. There is a God to whom we, we must give an account. So I want to say this now, and in a sense it's a conclusion. Let it be said that the notion of pre-forgiveness or of unconditional, unconditionally guaranteed acceptance is not found in the Holy Scriptures. It is a fallacy to think that our sins we Christians may commit tonight or next week are already canceled or already forgiven. If the sins of true believers are, are pre-canceled, then future repentance, perseverance in faith, future confession of sin, and ongoing obedience are all inconsequential. They're all inconsequential matters in regard to a person's present and final salvation. This notion of pre-forgiveness is an antinomian heresy. It is a perversion of the true gospel of grace. It is also in perfect harmony with the serpent's lie to Eve when he said to her in regard to eating the forbidden fruit, quote, ye shall not surely die. That's what Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. And lots of preachers today are repeating Satan's lie. They're saying, you shall not surely die. You shall not lose your state of favor if you were once a true believer. They will say, once in grace, always in grace. Once saved, always saved. These are all lies from Satan. Now, I do believe once saved, always saved. If you don't repeat sin or if you don't go back into sin, yes, I believe in once saved, always saved. So long as you stay true to God and Christ and, and maintain a, a an attitude and a, a life of full obedience to God. Yeah, I do believe in once saved, always saved in that sense, but not in the other sense I've been talking about. The doctrine of unconditional eternal security is a doctrine of devils. It is a damnable heresy. It is very pernicious. It is false. It is dangerous. It's close to the selling of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church. They could purchase an indulgence and they would have prepaid forgiveness for their sins. They could indulge in sin because they were already forgiven. And of course, that connected people really closely to the Catholic Church, and that ca caused the Catholic Church to grow leaps and bounds because people felt if they're not connected to the church, they can't, they can't be saved. And if they go to purgatory, there'll be no one to have masses said for them. And of course, people have to pay for that. And that's how, that's one reason, one way in which the Catholic Church has gotten very rich. They've been uh, playing with the souls of mankind. And it's a, uh, it's a very dangerous system. But 
the eternal security doctrine could be worse than that. That's how bad this eternal security is because a lot of people, all they have to do to have prepaid coverage for future sin is just receive Jesus into your heart, ask him into your heart, and you're saved. Once saved, always saved. And they don't question their salvation ever after, even though they're living in sin afterward. And this is a dangerous doctrine. And one verse that a lot of the eternal security people use to promote their belief in unconditional eternal security is found in John chapter 10. And I want to leave you with this verse, make a few comments. It's in John, the Gospel of John chapter 10. And it's in verse, well, let me read verse 28 and 29. These are the verses that they use. And they'll basically only read these two. But I'm going to read four of them, the ones that come before. They read these. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. There's three verses there. But that's what they quote. And they say, see, once you believe, you will never perish, and no man can pluck you out of your hand, out of God's hands. Well, we got to read the two verses that precede that. Let me read those. Verse twenty-six says, "But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you." And he's speaking here to the Jews. In verse twenty-four, so he's saying to them, "You believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you." And then he's, he defines his sheep. Verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And, the, and so on. So who is it that receives eternal life? Well, the first part of the sentence says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So it's those that hear his voice. You know, some people don't hear his voice because they don't want to hear his voice. If you don't want to hear his voice, if you've been saved 30 years ago, 10 years ago, 10 days ago, and you don't want to listen to God's voice anymore, well, don't call yourself a sheep. You're not saved because you don't want to hear his voice. But here it says, my sheep hear my voice. That's one condition. The other one is, I know them. Okay, Christ knows them, knows them intimately. That means they have a personal relationship with him to the point that he knows them. He is intimate with them. And then it says, and they follow me. And I looked up that word follow. It has these meanings. To follow means to pursue. It means to imitate. It means to obey. It means to adhere to. So they adhere to me, and it also means embrace. So they obey me. So my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, they obey me. They imitate me. And to those people, Christ promises something. He says, and I give. There's the word gift. It's a gift. And I give them eternal life. That's the promise. But there is a condition that we must meet in order to have this promise. And this is, believe it or not, one of their main verses that they use to teach unconditional eternal security. And it is nowhere found in this verse. 
And uh, they're going to have to find another verse in the Bible. There's a few others that they use. But I just think this is a clear one that supports the view of all of Scripture, which teaches that in order to be saved, we must repent, believe, and persevere in faith. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you all. Thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for another show.